Now let's get after verse number one, if you would. And again, already pray for my voice. I feel like I've, I'm, I'm climbing up the mountain and I'm only three steps in and I'm struggling. So if you would, please uh, pray for my voice and don't let it distract you. I'll do my best. I'm, I'm easily distracted. Most of you aren't distracted, uh, but I get distracted by it. And so pray for me, if you would. We're going to start in verse number one. <clears throat> we already did verses one through uh, three. And verses one through three really are the table setting of the chapter that kind of explain um, that, that chapter number 11 is not only a hall of faith, it is a call to faith. It is the author inviting the Hebrew Christian into the heritage of faith that they possessed. And uh, as a Jewish people, they possessed great faith. And uh, the story, what you're going to come upon, um, this is almost completely, um, well, I want to be careful how I say it. It, it is completely true until a point. Um, what you're going to find in Hebrews chapter 11 is a chronological historical account of the faith of the Hebrews. Um, now, when you get into the latter verses where he starts listing Samson and some of the other people, the author actually breaks chronology. He no longer puts it in the proper order. He's just beginning to list things. Uh, but for the most part, Hebrews chapter number 11 is a bit of a historical timeline of the faith of the Jewish people and uh, a rich faith, and there were great characters who had great faith. And uh, so again, it's not just some, uh, I don't know, porcelain picture that we put on a wall and say, look at all those people who had faith. Uh, It is a call to the believer today and to the Hebrew of of yesteryear. It is a call to the believer to have the same faith. Um, Specifically, um, I would say maybe in America, heritage matters a little less to us. And I'm not speaking to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, But in America, we oftentimes, we kind of go our own path. And, you know, our father was a truck driver. We don't necessarily care to be a truck driver. We oftentimes, heritage doesn't have the weight that it did in the the old days, especially in the Bible days. And so to the Jews, heritage was everything. And they were the seed of Abraham and everything that that entailed, they held on to deeply. And uh, you can read the rest of the New Testament and find that oftentimes they held on to that to their detriment and uh, believing that that purchased for them some form of spiritual election. And uh, so the author here is going to appeal to that real heavy nationalism, that real heavy uh, heritage. And uh, he's going to call them as he has already before. I think it was in chapter number nine. uh, He talked about how those before them had uh, obeyed and and, and he appealed in in chapter 10 to uh, under the law of Moses. And so the entire time he is speaking directly to his audience and chapter 11 is no different. So don't, don't disconnect that. Chapter 10, chapter 11, they're all uh, beautifully interwoven. And so this is a hall of faith. And uh, like I said, the table is set in verses one through three. Let's look at it again. This is now faith is that substance. Now remember the word substance, meaning not the shadow of, but the very thing itself, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that sounds very backwards um, because throughout the entire Old Testament, the, the actual thing you could touch, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, that was the shadow, but not the substance. And now in chapter 11, he flips it. And the thing you can't touch is actually the substance and not the thing you can touch. And uh, this faith is the substance, whereas the tabernacle was just the shadow. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. So again, elders is a throwback to their the way the Jewish system worked. Uh, they would have elders that would meet in the city at the gates and just kind of uh, scan over your, your biblical knowledge of the Old Testament. The elders were those who ruled Israel. The Pharisees were considered elders. The Sadducees were considered elders. And so he's saying, hey, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, the elders uh, obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand Understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, uh, so that the things which are seen were not made by 
things which do appear. And so he says, hey, nobody, none of us were alive to see uh, the foundations of the world, but by faith, the very beginning of our faith is the belief that God did what he said he did, uh, recorded for us in Genesis chapter number one, that God created the heaven and the earth. Now, it's interesting as we pick up in the actual um, kind of started to to list, as he's going to start going through characters of faith, it's interesting to me that it's the third man on planet earth that makes the list and not the first one and not the second one. Um, The first man on planet earth was Adam. The second one was Cain. But the third one is the first person to make the list of faith. And that is probably pretty obvious as to why, if you just spent a little bit of time thinking of it. Um, I would encourage you as you're reading the Bible to stop and try to take note of those things. Uh, There are interesting things both in omission, um, what the Bible doesn't say and what the Bible doesn't include, and then what the Bible does include. Now, don't go crazy on me and start reading between lines and flipping verses upside down and, and, you know, using verse references to prove some wild, crazy theme. But here it is important that he skips the first two men. One, because the first Adam started all of this, right? Uh, And that's why the second Adam uh, uh, rectifies what the first Adam broke. But then Cain, we obviously know why Cain wouldn't make the list. Um, We saw that study a little bit last week as as Cain is instructed on what God deems acceptable. And he says, hey, if you do well, then aren't you accepted? But if not, then sin lieth at the door. And we understand which path that Cain took. Uh, Cain did not decide in faith to obey what God had instructed him in that moment. He rather decides uh, to continue on and to, to slay his brother in anger and so forth. And so this third man ever born, or the second man ever born, third man ever on earth, uh, he makes the hall of faith. Look at verse number four. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained a witness that he was, would you read that word out loud? Righteous. Now, that's a very important word. That is a New Testament theological term, righteous, to be, be declared innocent. And so if you ever got accused of a crime, uh, the judge is supposed to either find you completely innocent or guilty. And so to be found innocent is to be declared righteous. Now, this is important because we are now in the New Testament era at the writing of Hebrews, but Abel was in the not even Old Testament era. Uh, when you would think about Old Testament, you might think, well, when, it was, when the writing of it began. Well, the writing of it, with, with the exception of Job, uh, began at Moses. And so he writes the first five books of the Bible, what we would know as the Pentateuch. Uh, and so Abel exists long before that. And yet even before the writing of the law, Abel is declared to be righteous. Now, what you're looking at, and I told you there was a lot in this chapter or this one verse. We spent some time looking at some other stuff last week. I want to lean into this idea of Old Testament salvation. Uh, Abel is, his righteousness is contingent on his faith, listen, in the acceptability of blood. That God says, hey, I accept your sacrifice because it is a blood sacrifice. That is the only, listen, that is the only truth that Abel understands as it relates to God's salvational plan. Uh, he may and probably does understand, I would say, that God has promised his mother a son that through her would come the one who would co- conquer the serpent and bring man back into righteousness. But really, this is, this is the only other detail that Abel understands about how to be saved, is that 
day, God says, hey, I accept blood sacrifices. I do not accept, I do not desire uh, the works of the field or the labors of your hand. And so he didn't know all the other details. Now, you and I do. Praise God for this, right? And that's why I said there is no better time to be a Christian than right now. The completed word of God, the Holy Spirit inside of us, a rich heritage of church. It's a blessing to be able to be a Christian right now and look back and see this, this mystery of, even the mystery of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would be brought back in. The mystery of salvation all the way through the Old Testament, very clouded, very shadowed, and yet you and I see it in its fullness. But Abel, think about Abel. There is no way Abel understood what you and I do. Well, why? Because God had not yet revealed it to him. What he did know was that his mom was promised a seed and that son would come and crush the serpent's head. What he does know now is that God accepts blood sacrifice and that is all that he knows and yet he is considered to be righteous by God. And so let me ask you the question, how was someone saved in the Old Testament? Some would say, well, it's the sacrificial system. Well, Abel's declared righteous and there is no sacrificial system. Well, they were saved by obedience to the law. There is no law. There's, no, there's not even been a mediator yet in the person of Moses. And so understand this. This is so important. Mankind in the Old Testament was responsible to accept in faith what God had revealed to them in their day. Now, after Moses, they are responsible to the law. Prior to Moses, they are responsible for the fullness of truth God had revealed to them. You'll find the same exact thing true of Abraham in just a few moments, that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, because of faith in what God had showed them. Now, you can't say, well, you know, that means that the people in Africa in the deep, dark corners of the jungle who have never had the word of God, they are only responsible to look up at creation and say, there must be a God. Boom, they're saved. No, because the completion of revelation has been given to man. All that God has intended to reveal to us in this life has been recorded for us. And so all men living are responsible for the entirety of the revelation of God. And that's why I went to Tehachapi yesterday. And that's why I went to Bakersfield last Saturday. And that's why the soul winners will go out this Sunday. Because man is responsible for what God has revealed to him. And in Abel's day, so far, there are two things. There's a seed coming and blood is accepted by God. And so look at verse number uh, four. It says, God testifying of his gifts... Uh, and by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. And the author says, listen to the dead man. This man, who's actually the first man to die, uh, Abel, yet he still speaks. And what is he speaking about? He's speaking about faith. He's speaking about faith in divine revelation, speaking about faith in what God deems acceptable, speaking about faith in God's plan of salvation. But understand me here, please. There's only two marks plotted on this path of redemption. You and I will spend the rest in humanity, will spend the rest of time till today watching God's plotted points of salvation, watching God clarify for us exactly who Jesus was going to be. All the way till last year, last, last uh, Christmas, we talked about how, we talked about the prophecies of Christ and that final prophecy given in Malachi that there's gonna come a forerunner, one final prophet, and that final prophet will introduce your Messiah. Boom, final plot on the point, and then Jesus right? And even after Jesus, the apostles spend their lives clarifying the points on the, on the, on the ark, if you will, this chart and, and path. But right now in Abel's day, he is counted righteous because he has accepted in faith two things, that God accepts blood and that there's a seed coming through, through woman that will bring us back into the garden. Could he have known this was going to be the son of God, the almighty, the everlasting father, the prince of peace? Isaiah had not come yet. 
Isaiah's revelation had not come yet. And so uh, Abel is responsible for that. Abraham's going to be a little more responsible as God's going to provide himself a lamb and Jehovah Jireh. And all these different plots are going to be plotted on this ark that you and I are fully responsible for. But in their day, they're responsible for what God has revealed to them. And so he says, listen, the author, this man being dead yet speaketh. Uh, And again, it wasn't by works of the hands. It wasn't by works of their, their own righteousness. That's been established through the testimony all the way back to Abel, to you and I today. Um, so I want to introduce you uh, to how we're going to walk through the rest of the passage. What you're going to find, um, at least what I found as I was walking through this particular text, is there, there's a, there are situational uh, moments of faith that in its own context is very, very specific. And the only way to make that even remotely applicable to us is to, to, to kind of bridge what was going on in their day to some similarities to what's going on in our day. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack it in its day, in its context. This was the faith. For example, like Abraham, uh, the, the application is not we should all sacrifice our children, okay? Uh, but there is a bridge to our modern-day context. And so we're going to see it in its context, then we're going to develop it in our context with respect to it in its own. I hope that makes sense to you. We're about to embark on a 16-plus person list. Um, there's a couple times where kind of ambiguous references to multiple people. And so, but there's 16 specifically listed people in the hall of faith that you and I are going to have to draw some uh, application for our own edification. Uh, let me illustrate with the first character, right? Abel had faith in the acceptability of blood, the promise of uh, a, a, a son that's going to come. And I would even say maybe there's a third plot on that point that God took an animal and covered his parents. And so that's pretty much all that's on that plotted chart. But then you come to our second study in verse number five, and it's by faith Enoch, okay? By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And so Enoch was taken by God into heaven uh, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And so this is a man walking in obedience, not a perfect man, certainly not a perfect man. Uh, this is a man who is under the fall of Adam. And so this, uh, there's, there's some generations between Adam and Enoch. Uh, but, excuse me, what you're finding is a pattern of faith. That's what, that's what the author's trying to establish. Hey, uh, Abel and now Enoch, a pattern of faith. And he is teaching us that it was through faith that this man, in that he pleased God through his faith, that God decided to translate him and take him into the very presence of God. Now, let me say this. Enoch alone is sufficient to dismiss dispensational salvation. Let that sink in for a second. Some of you are like, what is dispensational salvation? Okay, uh, let's unpack that. Um, dispensational salvation is the idea that at different times in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and then even in the, the, the uh, eschaton, in the end days, man will be saved by different means. There are those who believe in the Old Testament that they were saved by the sacrifices. Well, you've never read the book of Hebrews because very clearly no sacrifice could ever forgive sin. So that's off the table. But Enoch alone is sufficient to dismiss really any view of dispensational salvation. Because he couldn't have been saved by sacrifice. There was no sacrificial system. Uh, he, he is taken from earth into the very presence of God. There's not been animal sacrifices uh, established in a, in, a, in a universal setting. Um, there's no sacrifice even mentioned in Enoch's translation. Now, I will say this too. I would see this text to dismiss the lighter view of dispensational salvation. That would be the idea of Abraham's bosom. That in the Old Testament, before the blood of Jesus was shed and applied, man would die and have to go to this holding place uh, of Abraham's bosom. Well, until the blood was shed, right? And that, that, that sounds logical in that the blood has to be shed and applied to the mercy seat for man to be able to go into the presence of God, except for Enoch. What do you do with Enoch? 
who's taken into the presence of God. But the blood had to be applied, then then Enoch doesn't need the blood of Jesus is, is the big gaping hole. If you ever watch like a show and like you get to the end, you're like, oh, that was a pretty good show. And then you start thinking, you're like, man, there's a massive hole in that plot. That's the massive hole in that plot. Uh, and how do you get to that particular place? And Elijah is another exception uh, to that rule. And that God took him in a world, by a whirlwind up into heaven. And so how is that even, how does that fit into the theological framework of you have to wait? And here's how, because the blood was slain from the foundation of the world. That in the mind of God, he looked and said, I will reveal to them and I will show them. And then the, the, all the promises, I love this. We're, we're working on a song for Christmas. Um, that word become flesh. Well, all these promises are the word. And then that word becomes a person. And the promise is now fulfilled. And yet in the mind of God, it was established and clarified that his blood was good enough from the beginning. And so uh, there are no exceptions to the need for blood, right? There are no sinless men between Adam and Jesus or from Jesus till today. And yet what we do find is that God takes these men by faith into his presence. And so it has always and will always be by faith that man is made righteous. Uh, and there's no exception to that. There never has been, nor will there ever be. So even when you get to the, uh, the eschaton, the end of days, it is by faith that you will be saved and taken to the presence of God. Look at verse number six. He says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is the only method by which a created, flawed human being can come close to pleasing their God. It is not by blood, uh, though blood plays a hugely significant role in the atonement process, but by faith, uh, you receive that gift of grace. And so faith is an absolute prerequisite to righteousness. And we see that in every one of these instances, in every one of these stories. And again, I love it. He, just like I said, he, he set the table in verses one through three. Well, he comes back and resets the table in verse six, that you cannot please God without faith. It is not possible. No matter how good work, how many good works you have, uh, no matter how much good things you do, no matter how often you go to church, you cannot please God without faith. It is not possible. Now we get to our third character study found in verse number seven. He says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as of yet. So that's important. That's going to come into the application phase. But he has not seen. He has no evidence for the things God's about to tell him. Notice what it says. Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So this historical account of the faith of the patriarchs is a historical account of how righteousness was obtained in the Old Testament by faith. He inherited, became an heir of righteousness by faith. And I love what it says. It says that of things not as, forgive me, things not seen as yet. So he has no evidence for this. Now, some would, some would maybe uh, reckon, uh, reckon that verse to say he's never seen rain. Um, that may be true. He's certainly never seen a global flood. Um, it's possible he had not seen rain. It seems like before the flood, the dew would come up from the ground. And I'm not going to stand up here authoritatively and say it had never rained before the days of Noah. Um, it had never flooded like, the day, like it had in the days of Noah. And so faith is a reckoning of things you have no evidence for. Uh, and that's where the applicational portion comes in. Um, you and I have promises and, and, and very closely related to Noah, we have promises of judgment and reckoning that we have no evidence for. That someday a trumpet's going to sound and God's going to begin to pour out his wrath on, on all of earth. We have, we, have, we have no evidence for that, except for the fact that God has always kept his word. 
and that God is faithful and that God destroyed the earth once by water and he'll never do it by water again, but he did promise to do it again by fire. And so there is a day of judgment coming. And yet you and I might look crazy building a boat in the middle of the desert uh, or in the middle of, I don't know if it was exactly desert, probably not, uh, in the middle of Mesopotamia, building a boat, waiting for it to rain. You and I might look absolutely crazy building a family and a home that is separate from the, the pollution of this world because we're waiting for a day of judgment to come. But we're also, I think about this with, with Noah. Noah, because he feared God, he was what the Bible would call a preacher of righteousness. He was one that was sharing the word of God. And you and I have the same responsibility to be moved with fear. The Bible says it in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we know judgment's coming. Because we know there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be safe, right? Noah builds this ark. He goes into the ark, but he can't even shut the door. If he can't shut the door, there's a massive problem when it starts raining. So God shuts the door, and God keeps him alive, and God keeps him safe, and he buoys him above the judgment. And so it is with us. And you read Matthew 24 about, and it uses the exact example of, of, uh, of Noah, that God brings his people into the ark, takes his people safe, destroys the earth, and then lets them settle back in. And that's the tribulation, where before God pours his wrath out, he takes his people and he brings them to himself. He judges the earth and then he brings us back down to inhabit it. It's the exact example used uh, in the book of Matthew. And so uh, let's continue on. Next character we see is verse number eight. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went forth not knowing whither he went. Now, Abraham is going to get a large, um, oh, I don't know how to say it exactly. He's going to get a large footprint in this chapter. Um, he's going to be used as an example of faith for multiple things. And the first thing he's given is the fact that he left a place he knew to go to a place he was promised that he had never seen. Um, and you and I have, have that same responsibility on us and same promises on us that you and I have left the things of this world and are preparing to go in, into an inheritance that you and I have never seen. Uh, and, and that's just the reality of a Christian life, that you and I are living for a city whose builder and maker is God, which is actually in this chapter. Uh, you and I are living for a, a place we, we've never seen. Um, and, and that has a more present-day application too. And again, here's where I'm trying to be reverential to the text because the text isn't necessarily talking about situations situations in life, but we can make that application and still be fair to it. You and I might be called to do something we've never seen done. You and I might be called into an obedience of a place we've never ventured. There might be an area of Christianity, be it soul winning or man, missions work. And you and I are called to go and, and land our feet in faith in a place we've never seen with our own eyes. And yet you and I, through the example of Abraham can say, you know what, if Abraham could leave the Ur of Chaldees and go to a place he had never seen and just believe that God was going to provide for him and take care of him, maybe God would have you uproot your entire family and go to another country and you have never seen it and you've never landed foot on it and you don't know if God's going to provide. Well, if God did it for Abraham, he can do it for us today. We are in good company in the hall of faith. Look at verse number nine. There's another credit to his character. It says, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as, a, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, their heirs with him of uh, the same promises, or same promise. So by faith, Abraham didn't live uh, uh, his life uh, at, even ever receiving the promised land. It called him a sojourner. So he actually ends up in the promised land and walks to and fro uh, through it, but he never really gets to own it and inhabit it. He is, he's, he's going to receive this promise, but here's the important application part. But it's going to be for his children. 
So he's going to walk out in obedience, never really receive the promise. He'll be in it and he'll meddle with it and he'll walk to and fro through the land uh, and God will promise him this and that and so forth. But he never, because he's just one man, never really gets to inhabit it in its fullness. That's going to happen through his lineage. Uh, and this I would just applicationally, I would bring forth the truth of generational blessing that you and I are living after some promises that maybe you and I won't even get to fully inherit in our lifetime. We may not fully receive the blessing for all of our giving and all of our sacrifice and all of our living, but hey, we are laying up for the generations to come. Isaac and Jacob are coming after us and they're going to get the land. And even they don't fully receive the land. They're going to end up down in Egypt and then come back out and Moses is going to try to lead them in and that's not going to work. And then Joshua is going to finally lead them in and, and so forth. But the idea of generational blessings, that God wants to bless you and the generation behind you. And you ought to be okay with that. Some of the things you may never receive even though you were obedient, those things might go to your children in terms of blessing. Look at verse number 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now understand this. Let's, let's put Abraham back in the boat with uh, Abel. Abraham is told that God is going to build him a city and a great nation. You think Abraham understood all that that meant? There's just no way. There's just no way. He knows the world is going to be blessed through his seed. But I would assume he's just thinking proud grandpa. Like, oh man, I'm going to have so many grandbabies. This is going to be awesome. And he doesn't even realize that a large portion of that's going to be through adoption. That the Gentiles are going to be grafted into this, this family. That they're going to become the seed of Abraham as well. And, and Abraham doesn't even understand it, but he knows this. I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that doesn't even happen until the end of days when God brings it back here. And in its fullest consummation, God builds a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth here for us to inhabit. But Abraham doesn't understand all of that. There's just no way he does. But he believes it in faith. And he doesn't know how it's all going to look. But he believes that God promised it and God calls him to it. So he steps out in faith to follow and obey. And God does indeed and will indeed fulfill this full promise. Uh, we will have to stop right there. But I will say this. In verse number 11... Um, just look at it real quick. The first couple words, it says, through faith, also Sarah. And it talks about how she received strength and conceived a seed and delivered the child when she was past age. This is where you start to see the first, but not the only character on the list. You and I would be like, how'd Sarah make it on the list? Sarah gets credit for faith. But when you go back to the story, Sarah actually laughs at God when he makes the promise. So it's really, really poor faith. And so we're going, to have to, we're going to have to adjudicate what we find in Hebrews for what we find in Genesis. And that's going to happen a couple times. Uh, Samson makes the list for great faith. I'm not, not even remotely sure how that happened. Um, but we're going to go through that, and we're going to learn that God doesn't always see us through our failures. Um, there's a chance for us to come back and so forth. So a lot of application left in this particular chapter. We only made it to verse 11. We'll pick up there next Sunday.